0: Welcome to the Real Python podcast. This is episode 158. Do you need a refresher on using Docker with Python? Would you like to learn how to configure a continuous integration pipeline with modern tools in Docker? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of Pycoders Weekly articles and projects. We share a recent Real Python tutorial from Bartosz Jachinski about building continuous integration with Docker. Docker provides consistent environments for configuring, testing and delivering Python applications. This tutorial will help you get up to speed with current Docker and CI techniques. We also speak with Bill Pollock from No Starch Press about Hacker Initiative. This public nonprofit gives back to and strengthens the hacking community. The 2023 grant cycle is currently open until August 15th and we discuss the application process and projects from previous grant recipients. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news update, implementing metaclasses in Python, creating time machine style backups, and scanning your project for vulnerabilities. All right, let's get started. The Real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher. Welcome back. Hey there. All right. So this week we have a couple pieces of news and a little bit shorter on the topics in the middle because I have a, an interview with Bill Pollock talking about Hacker Initiative, which is a really great interview. I was really excited to talk to him and also a, a great opportunity for people who are interested in potentially getting funding for their projects. He has a, a charity that is looking for people to apply and do grants for. So please, you know, stay tuned and listen for that at the end of the show here. But today we're going to start with some PyPI news, right?
1: Yeah, there's lots going on over at PyPI. I, I'm not sure if this is how funky things always were, and now we just know about it because they have a blog.
0: Yeah, the blog is new, yeah.
1: or whether, Or whether somehow the blog is causing the universe to conspire to give them stuff to write about. I don't know how it's happening, but there's, yeah, bunches going on. First off, May twentieth, they actually had to shut things down for a little while. They suspended new account and new project registrations. We've talked multiple times about some of the malicious package naughtiness going on over there. Yeah, and they were getting p- hit pretty hard, and so they just decide to suspend the creation of new accounts and the creation of new projects. Uh, it lasted about thirty hours, and then they opened up for traffic again. Okay. So this probably sucked for some people if that was the day you were going to create a new account (laughs) (laughs) going live today (laughs) uh, but I'm kind of happy that they're doing it right like this is it's it gives them another lever that they can use uh, when this stupidity is going on so uh, especially if it's automated on the exactly yeah so more more power to them for doing this I think it just shows responsibility so that's great yeah good and uh, the second bit also from the PyPI blog uh, evidently back in March and April they were subpoenaed For user information by the U.S. Department of Justice. And because of how this stuff works, they're not allowed to say very much about it. They have written a lengthy posting about what kinds of information they have and could have been made to turn over. They're also promising to review their data retention policies. So if this happens in the future, it will be clearer what they can and can't provide. Which brings me to a very important question Just what did you do, Mr. Billy? (laughs) it wasn't me Um, I was just (laughs) running that demo
0: project from Gerarna and (laughs) (laughs) that's it throw it under the bus (laughs) (laughs) I don't know (laughs) yeah it's it's really kind of interesting I'm glad that that there's this level of transparency but it's also probably good to know you know what sort of things are you inserting and privacy wise into these services and what's available if something got subpoenaed
1: yeah, and the posting is very honest about you know what their policies are and how they want to think about it, and they, they seem to take the privacy of your data very very seriously. So uh, they're gonna they're gonna reexamine some of this for the future. One last little thing, quickly: the beta preview of Python three twelve came out on May twenty second. So we're getting closer and closer to that release in October. It's coming up. Try it out.
0: Yeah, I think I saw builds for the Wazi version being kind of posted also, which is kind of exciting and kind of h- harkens back to my conversations with Brett Cannon. So there's versions out there for those things too that to people try out in the beta. All right, well, that brings us into topics. And my first one is from Bartosz Jachinski. And this is a, well, I don't want to say very, but it is an advanced tutorial on using Docker. And going beyond that, also setting up Continuous Integration CI, and using a bunch of tools. Bartosz took on this massive task of looking at an older tutorial that was popular on the site but was kind of aging, partly because of all the different resources and tools and services and things that it was using. It was from Markel Herman. This is before Dan got involved with Real Python, and the original article was Docker in Action: Fitter, Happier, More Productive. So he was looking at ways to update it, and he added this note in the tutorial, which is saying, hey, this is loosely based on that original. Unfortunately, many of the tools described in the original tutorial are no longer supported or available for free. And in this updated tutorial, you get a chance to use the latest tools and technologies, such as things like GitHub Actions, which would be new comparatively to when the original was written. So I've thought about tackling these rather large tutorials in a different way, it, there isn't a great way to summarize them without kind of just listing everything that's in the table of contents. And I might do a little bit of that later as we go, because I want to give people an idea of, hey, what's in this thing? I kind of almost want to do more of like, hey, who is this for? <laughs> it's really not geared for beginners or even kind of intermediate people that are looking to do you know, pure Pythonic things. It's much more geared toward, hey, you have this project and you've heard about using Docker, potentially you're thinking about other advanced things like continuous integration or even like configuring properly something that you're going to put out there in the world and making sure that it has gone through all the steps of like, hey, is this secure? Um, What are the things I need to think about as far as like preserving the integrity of this code and so forth as you do it? And Docker is a really powerful tool and it's been around for a long time. And so one of the people I think of that this is maybe a good fit for as an advanced tutorial is someone who maybe used, used Docker three, four years ago, and you haven't been keeping up with all the things that have changed about it. Maybe some of the services you used to use have changed and so forth. And you'd like to really get a refresher on that and sink your teeth into something, really learn these tools in a very integrated way. I think this would be a great resource for you. It uses a large number of different tools really disparate kind of things and ties them all together it does do python but it's mostly flask and you're setting up a, a basically a site counter kind of thing that can live online and of course you do the local development type of thing which is a really common thing where you're setting it up on your own machine with docker and there's different versions of docker um, other ways that you can integrate it but you do a lot of command line integration kind of stuff, the CLI tool from Docker. If you haven't used Docker in a while, like I was saying, this intricate project is going to really help you sharpen up those skills and get more familiar with what's happening today with it. I personally found it very useful because of the ways that I use Docker. Very often are to simplify a, a Python tool. Like we've talked about different ways that data science projects can be rather large and involve lots of different tools. And sometimes they might be available for you to grab a Docker container for you to do the experimenting with. We also at RealPython use a tool called Marpet, which is a slide making tool. And the easiest way to do that project generally is to just grab a Docker container. And, you know, I use that locally on my machine and then I just turn on Docker and run the commands for it. So Again, I wasn't deploying lots of Docker containers of late. It was something I was doing more, you know, four or five years ago. So this was a good way to get back into it. This is much more of that build, configure containers, get your hands dirty, details of the ins and outs. You run a Redis server and you're going to do that locally and kind of play around with it, kind of setting it up and communicating with it, setting up ports and things like that. And then you, like I mentioned, that you create this dockerized Python web application using Flask. You work with Docker images. You play a little bit with pushing to the Docker hub registry. It even gets into orchestrating with multiple containers and using something like Docker Compose. You learn, again, the sort of CI stuff, trying to figure out how do you create the workflow and then do all that with GitHub Actions. He has you really working with lots of configuration. You start initially setting up with Toml files and practicing some techniques with PIP. A couple of things that I hadn't seen, and I actually have this question for you. I'm sure you've used con- requirements files, but have you used constraints files with PIP? No, I have not. Okay. So it's it's something that Pip does that is really interesting. And so it was kind of a something that I was like, well, I'm gonna do a little more research and learn a little bit more about it. So I'll include some more links to it from the PIP documentation. the idea is to make sure that with this constraints text file, that all your versions are using the same version number. And you might think to myself, Well, doesn't requirements do that? Well, it kind of does it in a different way that if there are multiple things that are looking to be installed, what I feel like it does is that it it's saying. If you're gonna use, say, requests, then it should be this version. Uh, I've seen it in a few repos, and and here you get to interact and play with it a little bit, so I thought that was kind of neat and new for me. You configure YAML files, our favorite, because Docker uses that. You work with Docker Hub, and I mentioned GitHub Actions. There's lots of pitfalls that are shown, which I think is great. And then, of course, lots of tips and tricks for avoiding them. I know that Barta has invested a ton of time into this piece and it really shows. So great work on it. I would read this middle section just real quick from the table of contents because it's just like so many details. Just under the subheading of Dockerize your Flask web application, you learn about understanding Docker terminology. You learn the anatomy of a Docker file, choose the base Docker image, which involves how small can I get it? What Linux distribution, what version of Python pre-installed? To isolate the Docker image, caching your project dependencies, running tests, use PyTest in this a lot. Specify Docker commands to run a Docker containers, recognize your Docker file for multi-stage builds, build and version your Docker image, push the image to a Docker registry, and then yay, run the Docker container. (laughs) So that's just like in this one portion in the middle of this table of contents. So you can kind of see the, the amount of detail that you get into. So it's definitely a DevOps kind of thing, but the intersection of Python and that is pretty common, especially if you're wanting to host or deploy things and are not using like a, a pre-configured solution. This will help you with a lot of that stuff. Great job, I'm impressed with the amount of detail that went into this project. What's your first topic?
1: Uh, uh, So this is a course from a frequent real Python contributor named Christopher Trudeau. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) Uh, It's called Meta Classes in Python. Uh, Meta Classes are one of those things most people never need to use. uh, But learning about them teaches you more about how classes work in Python. So it can be fun. Yeah. Uh, Let's start with the tricky stuff. Meta Classes are, well, meta. You've probably heard somebody Likely me say everything in Python is an object, and even things like integers are objects, even though they're a fundamental data type. And uh, in some other languages, they're not. In Python, they are. Yeah. Now, when I say mean everything, I, I mean everything. Those classes that you write to define objects, yeah, those are also objects. And l- like the way a class is used to generate an object, a metaclass can be used to generate a class. So you can get a hint about how all this works by opening up a REPL and playing around with the type function. Uh, Type returns information about the type of an object. For example, if I create a list called cats with some strings in it, when I run type parentheses cats, I get back class list because the type of a list is the class list. So makes sense so far, right? So then you move on and you're gonna create a class called dog an instance of that, say Fido, like with the list case, if I do type Fido, I get back class dog. Makes sense. There's a little more information in there than that, but that's the essence class dog. Now here's where it gets tricky. If I run type dog, that's asking the type of the class rather than the object instance. What you get back is a class type. The type of a class is type. In fact, the type type is as far up as you can go, because the (laughs) type of a type is also type. Uh, And this is where your brain melts, right? So the course starts out by running you through all of this, along with a brief history lesson, as it hasn't always worked this way. This concept of the way types work here is based on inheritance, was added in Python 2.2. And both the old way and the new way, new meaning at least Python 2.2, were available at the same time. Python 3 killed the old way, so the not-so-new way, which is now the only way. For backwards compatibility, the syntax of the so-called new way is also allowed in Python 3. So if you've ever seen a class inheriting from object, that's the Python 2 style. It's allowed in Python 3.0. You can skip it in Python three, but it all does the same thing, and that's the so-called new style. New as you know, twenty years ago. <laughs> right. You should never name anything new because it dates very, very quickly. Uh, anyway, so that's the background. Uh, now to the actual metaclass stuff. The first example in the course is a meta counter. This is a metaclass that counts how many classes have inherited from the metaclass. Not particularly useful, but it helps teach the concept with only a few lines of code. To declare counter meta, you inherit from type, which is what causes it to be a meta class. A meta class can contain a dunder new method, just like classes can, and it's invoked when the meta class is created. So counter meta creates a counter and stores it inside of the meta class when dunder new is invoked. So to use a metaclass, you use it as an argument as part of your inheritance. So if I was going to create a class called pi, mm, pi, and it uses counter meta, uh, you write class pi parentheses meta class equals counter meta. So remember, counter meta counts the class usage, not the instance usage. So creating the pi class sets the counter meta's class counter to one, but you can create as many kinds of pie as you like strawberry, apple, raspberry, even rhubarb if you're evil. And counter meta's counter is still one because there's only one class using it, not the instances. So superior to pie is cake. I'll fight you. And if you create a cake class that uses counter meta as a meta class, the world will be a better place. So by creating the cake class, not instance objects, the counter meta count value gets incremented to two. So chocolate, vanilla, how many instances you want of cake, the class counter stays at two. So that's the basic idea. This is the class creation classes. Uh, The course runs you through some common uses of meta classes like factory patterns, singletons, and how magical frameworks like Django and Pedantic use them. It then does a rather deep dive into one of the standard library's metaclasses, which is enum. So there's an entire lesson devoted to walking you through how an enum is built, uh, how it uses metaclasses, and all the weird little edge cases that are involved. Obviously, audio is the worst way of trying to describe code. So uh, if all of that just sounded like yammering, maybe take a look at the course and see the visuals as you go along. Uh, But uh, either way, I'll end off with a quote from Tim Peters that seems to show up anytime anyone mentions metaclasses. And that's, if you wonder whether you need them, you don't. The people who actually need them know with certainty. So powerful little tool and uh, interesting information about how the under bits of classes work in Python.
0: Does it work with like a,
1: if you can't afford to do them, then, <laughs> no. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent, yes. If you have, to have, if you have to ask how expensive, you probably can't afford it. Is that, uh, yeah, right. yeah. 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 It's, it's, a, it's a little bit that. I, it, once you've learned them, there are problems where you go, oh, that's how I do that. You're probably not going to, it's probably not going to drastically change your coding uh, approach. But if you're doing some harder core stuff, like writing out frameworks, uh, yeah. it can be a useful tool. Yeah, and we had a a deep conversation, sort of discussion,
0: a few episodes back. I'll include a link for that too, where we kind of dove into some interesting, you know, stuff that's along these lines of talking about meta classes
1: and the conversation before. We were sort of talking about the idea that uh, you know people complain about you know it's a dynamic language. Why are we spending? Why are yeah, we spending yeah. the cost of that? And well, th- the ability to do this kind of stuff is why we're spending the cost of that. And so. Uh, there's things like Django and Pedantic and SQL Alchemy and a, a lot of uh, th- you know, things like decorators and stuff like that are are connected to these kinds of ideas. And, and the dynamicism gives you some power. Yeah, um, the dynamic power, superpowers, right. Yeah, and it comes at a cost. And uh, depending on your work, what you're working on, that cost might be important or not. Yeah. So I have
0: a quick story. This is actually submitted as an email to me from Tom Bertucci, and uh, he wrote, Hi Christopher, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. I've played every RealPython podcast episode at least once. <laughs> so he had an idea for a short podcast segment that came to mind when his son texted him a question from college. Hey Dad, how do you pronounce S-Q-L? And sometimes I created videos to evangelize new technology and I happened to be thinking about trying to get my employer's mainframe programmers excited about Python by demonstrating how they could continue to think in SQL, but write in a object-oriented manner by using SQL alchemy. So I thought this would be a perfect time to start a video with the interesting story about how SQL got its name. In the first three minutes of his video, which I'll link, it's a YouTube video, he describes this history I'll, I'll even summarize even more, but Tom takes you through that history of databases starting back in like 1962. This is like three minutes of this thing. And he's talking about the network model and it used this multiple cross-reference system, which looked really convoluted as far as like how data would be kind of connected to each other. In 1970, Ted Codd created this thing called the relational model, which was a very early form of a query language, but he was a mathematician. And so the symbols and the notation was a little cryptic for programmers to figure out how they would uh, you know, write that as programming. His colleagues were programmers, and they got the gist of it, and they kind of ran with the idea. I think a lot of this is all happening inside of IBM. In 1973, the first attempt to create a query language was named Square, and that is a weird backronym of specifying queries as relational expressions. It used subscripts to indicate tables and relations. And yet again, subscripts are a real hard thing to write in programming. The original needed a better sequel to it. Um, He uses a a movie as an example. Um, His example is uh, The Godfather, (laughs) where the the sequel is potentially better than the the original. So in this case, it was named S-E-Q-U-E-L, and that was for structured English query language, a backronym, if you will. And so the problem with it was that the word SQL was already trademarked for a system to control and automate like factories and plants. And it was standing for sequence control unit. The creators removed the vowels, still pronounced it SQL and removed English from the name. So SQL, those letters are structured query language, but it's always been pronounced SQL. So hopefully that ends controversies on how to pronounce SQL. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's the one that Christopher Trudeau was mentioning earlier about metaclasses. Metaclasses are an important but mysterious behind-the-scenes mechanism for instantiating classes in Python. In this course, you'll learn about how Python's metaclasses work within object-oriented programming. The course is titled Metaclasses in Python, and it's based on a RealPython tutorial by John Sturtz. And the video course is presented, as I mentioned, by my co-host, Christopher Trudeau, and he shows you how everything really is an object in Python, including classes themselves, how the type function works, how classes instantiate objects and get instantiated themselves. You'll work with special methods like dunder call, dunder new, along with dunder init, and how you can hook class instantiation with the metaclass argument. Metaclasses aren't for the faint of heart, but they do allow you to do some magic. Plus, learning about them can help you understand what exactly happens behind the scenes when you instantiate a class. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So that takes us into projects. Do you want to go first? Sure. Uh,
1: My project this week is from a GitHub user ASWin with four N's, uh, (laughs) and it's called PyScan. This utility reads either a requirements.txt or a TOML file and does a lookup for each of the things found in there against the open source vulnerability database, And if you're like me and you've never heard of the open source vulnerability database, well, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a public database filled with little JSON structures that describe vulnerabilities in packages. So as security researchers or package maintainers find problems, they add information to the database and it's got a public API and there's actually a command line tool you can use to look stuff up inside of it. So PyScan uses that API. It's a pretty simple program. Essentially reading your project dependency declarations, looks them each up inside of the OSV, then prints out the result. The package is written in Rust, so the scan happens quite quickly. This seems to be an increasingly common approach these days with Python dev tools. Yep. And uh, yeah, so it's a neat little thing. AS Win is a student, or at least claims to be a student. Uh, Nobody on the internet knows you're a dog complete tangent here but i looked that cartoon up because i was trying to remember the artist's name and i had a total mandela effect moment i was confident this was a far side cartoon uh, and even had a mental picture of the style and nope it was a new yorker bit by peter steiner my apologies mr steiner and uh take it as a compliment for being grouped in with the great gary larson anyways what was i saying So, student, so give AS Win some love. Check the project out. Uh, give it a GitHub star or uh, buy the starving student a coffee. Uh, neat little project.
0: Yeah, cool. I wonder if it would be like one of those caption contest things they used to do. <laughs> it's like a dog talking to another dog, right?
1: Yeah, it's a dog talking to another dog, and this is on. And on a computer. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, <laughs> on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, my project is called R Sync Time Machine. Uh, with dashes in between them, time machine style backups for rsync. And it's a Python port of rsync time machine backup, which was much more of like a script kind of tool written l- literally in shell commands. And so it's translated into Python. It works in Linux, Mac OS, Windows, um, via WSL. And it's very flexible. It can backup to and from kind of any kind of file system, which I thought was pretty impressive. It states that it's fully tested. There's no external dependencies. You just got to be greater than or equal to Python 3.7. It has a a nice terminal output really explaining what it's doing, which I appreciated. I ran it and tried it out on some some different directories and it worked great and has a safety feature, which I found pretty quickly. Uh, The backup will only happen to a destination that's been explicitly marked to be a backup destination. It kind of very friendly says hey this isn't a designated place to back up to it even gives you the script uh, snippet to put back into the shell to run it again it uses latest sim link so that it will point to the latest successful backup it has a couple other kind of nice advanced features like i think rsyncs had this for a while the idea of exclusions and you can use an exclusion dot text file that would basically say, Hey, don't do these folders. Don't back up this and so forth. I just ran some basic tests on it. The, the projects by Boz Nisholt. um, I'll include links to it and then I'll include links to the other like, former projects and stuff like that. And also if you're interested in the exclude, um, from, I had to kind of do a little search to see how that stuff's formatted, but it's pretty, pretty straightforward. It can do backup in to and from, uh, SSH destinations, It has a resume feature, which is really nice. And the idea is that as it does this backup, it will just do, you know, in a particular destination, it'll show a current date that would have, you know, the the existence of everything you were backing up. And then it will have sort of a managed version of those dates. So if you've ever seen Time Machine before, it it makes sense um, if you're a Mac user on that. But again, this will work on pretty much any system. I don't know, I'm pretty impressed with it. Um, it's also just a neat project to kind of look at as far as the, the overall structure of it. R-sync time machine.
1: Cool. Every time time machine fails on me, I, I always go, I'm going to have find another way around this. So um, it's something to check out. Yeah. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, thanks again for coming on the show and bringing all these articles and projects, Christopher. Always fun. Talk to you soon. Up next, I'm going to talk to Bill Pollack from No Starch Press about Hacker Initiative and its 2023 grant cycle. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me join your show.
0: Yeah, it was really fun kind of meeting up with you at PyCon. I know Dan had met you last year and I saw you come by Mm -hmm. the booth, but this year we got to talk a little bit and you uh, told me a little bit about Hacker Initiative and how you were looking forward to getting the Word out about getting people to apply for grants. So, um, I thought maybe we could start here. Like, what would be your definition of a hacker, or maybe the organization's
2: definition of it? So when I when I founded what what was called the No Starch Press Foundation, but then uh, we changed the name two years ago, maybe to Hacker Initiative. The idea was to support uh, like a broad range of hackers. So we have kind of like I don't know. We could. We could split people into old and new camps, for example, but it's not really that simple. It's much more nuanced. Yeah, the word hacker has come to mean all kinds of things. We have the food hacker, we have the the, the IKEA hackers. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people do. <laughs> yeah, true, right. But we basically think about people who want uh, want to do something that maybe uh, a product was not originally designed for, or they want to research a new idea or a new way to build hardware like steve jobs and steve wozniak are considered to be uh, two of the earliest hackers yeah so it's defined by hacker initiative very broadly it's basically you know people with kind of a hacker mindset which is you know like let's say what we just experienced was by setting up my (laughs) my my microphone on windows because i'm a linux user and like i had to relearn windows like i have to work around it so it's like how do you get it to work i didn't come up with any creative solution but but many times when we're writing code, developing programs, building a company, uh, creating a new idea, we take a step back and say, like, how can we do something different? And, and in many ways, hackers have moved the world forward in many different areas.
0: Yeah. So you said that you had started Hacker Initiative as a, a slightly different organization initially. That was um, through sort of the no-starch press through, through your, your existing company?
2: So uh, it actually, it's the same organization, but I, I did, I had never started. So Hacker Initiative is a public charity. Okay. Never having been in the nonprofit world, I didn't actually understand what I was creating. (laughs) I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, What I wanted to do was put a bunch of money aside. Uh, A a, a bunch of that money came from early Humble Bundles. We, we, we mentioned that earlier. So we, we've been Humble Bundles' leading book publisher for years. I used to have bundles go close to a million dollars. So. I and the company made a lot of money from the bundles. I set a bunch of money aside, and the idea was to have the community drive this. So I tried to make it as open as possible. I'm a big open source fan, but it turns out that public charities are—I mean—have tons and tons of rules. Yeah, and it's really hard to get the word out about to get people to give grants and people to fund it and people to support it. But it's the same organization. It just—it's—it's it's not in any way actually tied to No Starch Press, except that. I created it, I funded it, and we used the logo initially. But it's it's a completely separate 501c3 public charity.
0: So you started it when?
2: twenty Well, the end of 2016, I officially okay. created
0: it. It sounds like that's been quite the journey of, of learning for yourself. Have there been lots of people helping you along the way?
2: Uh, I'll address the, the first question first, which is, yes, it's a constant journey <laughs> of learning and understanding how the the nonprofit world works. It's not really my world. Like I'm I've been very successful running a company for going on 30 years with no down years, which is pretty amazing in the book business. That's fantastic. But the nonprofit world is very different. And yes, I have, well, an attorney that works very closely with us to make sure that we stay on track. We basically, the public charity is, it's, I guess if I were to, I think I'm correct in saying it's basically run by the IRS and the California attorney general, (laughs) but my role as chair is to follow the rules, which doesn't always sit well in the hacking community. But <laughs> that's unfortunately what we have to do. And and if we don't do it, we can literally go to jail.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's a different, uh, different experience for sure.
2: It's different from saying like, okay, we're going in this direction, company. It's like, and that's what we're doing 10 minutes later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's true. I can't change the way the mission statement is done. I, I don't want to. I mean, that's the intent, right? But like, there's, there's a lot of rules that can make it difficult for us to fund certain projects. We have to really stay within the mission. And there are numerous ex- exclusions that we have to look out for to make sure that we don't violate those. And ultimately, we report to our donors. People give us money for a particular purpose.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Your website, hackerinitiative.org, has uh, examples of, of grants that you've given each year, the, the recipients and i wanted to detail a little bit you leave a very large umbrella of like you know what a hacker can be mm-hmm. and i think that's fantastic and there's lots of good examples that are in inside that grant recipients by year kind of menu if you were going to shine the light on some of them just to give people an idea of the types of projects that mm-hmm. that um projects or groups or individuals that have received grants in the past what would be a couple that you might want to point out
2: so The, the, the one thing to note is that the, the basic process is that we have a programming committee that's separate from the board, although we have, we can have board members on the programming committee. Okay. I'm just the board member as the chair. So the basic process is the programming committee reviews the grants. They make sure that they don't violate the exclusions. They make sure it's not a church or religious organization and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, People, because the people involved are, you know, like hacking type projects they have often liked things but but that we can't fund as a public charity okay but things that personally that i found interesting like there's a one current project well one recent project was uh, someone had the goal of creating a basically free 5g network so say you have schools that are requiring remote learning yeah and maybe it's less of an issue today but probably still an issue for schools and you have a a community that can't really afford the internet connection that's 70 dollars a month whatever so the idea was to build and, and i know there are other projects doing this kind of thing build a 5g stack that you could basically have people use to network machines without having to pay cable services it's a great idea uh, and but it's a lot harder to implement than it is to describe
0: right
2: we we have another project in the works uh, which is one one of many quantum computing research projects seems interesting we we like the idea of course as one board member said like what the hell is that? Or, you know, like, I mean, like, what, I mean, what is this a real thing? Right. You know what I mean? But, but you know, the, the the reality is we don't need to, the project doesn't have to work for it to be successful. So the idea is to because not everything that we try in life is going to work out well.
0: Yeah, I think everybody has an example of that in your own life of of trying out, and definitely programmers do. <laughs> so
2: Yeah, right. We try it. We, we we make an effort. We try to get it to work, and sometimes we abandon a project. It doesn't work, but we try it. So with, with Hacker Initiative, the project doesn't have to actually succeed as a project to be successful. This is true a lot in the... Um, do you know ftc first tech challenge this robotics
0: i just did a bunch of research
2: on it based upon you know
0: learning a little bit about it 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 sounds really cool and it sounds like your son was involved in that is that right
2: my yeah my son was actually this was one of the drivers uh, a primary driver for my creating this so this this is a perfect example of the kinds of projects that we would love to fund so when he was in high school he was programming, you know, like many people listening, you know, Python at age 12. He actually did the tech review on Python for kids when he was 15. He was in high school, and they interviewed him for this robotics team, and they used Python. He, well, they asked him, and they asked him some edge case questions, and he's like, I don't know, but I'll look it up, which is exactly the right answer. Yeah, yeah. The kid that was interviewing him, was basically trying to show how smart he was, they didn't put him on the team. Uh. So this team Bunch of friends, three of the friends, they were frustrated with the management on the robotics team in this high school. So they started their own team. And this is exactly the hacker ethos. It's like, you know, screw the adults. We're just going to do it our way. So they did it. They, so the first year, and they, and they said, yeah, we're going to be first in the FTC Champions, championship, world championship. They're, they're over 4,000 teams. And all the parents were like, yeah, 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 you know, you whatever. They used us as mentors only when they needed us, but we didn't, there were no engineers. We didn't tell them what to do. Uh, they would come to us when they needed something and basically like end the call once they had, literally when they had what they needed. They went back <laughs> to the group. Yeah. They learned everything on YouTube. They used the tech shop at the time. They got some deal where they made like beautiful parts and stuff. So the upset is the, these four, four high school students got together. They brought on two or three other people as well. In their second year, they came in second in the world championships, which wow. second out of 4,100 teams. And they were competing against teams that were like Google engineers sponsoring them or, you know, Intel engineers and major money. I gave them, I think, $5,000. But the point is like, e- even, well, they should have come in first, but they changed the robot in the finals, which, we, <laughs> but that's also something that we learned, right? Right, yeah. They did a fantastic job. They made an amazing robot. And the great thing was I had nothing to do with it. And neither did any of the parents. So what, what they all learned, and this is what the kind of group that we want to support, they had the right motivation. They didn't have to come in second for this to be successful. To their mind, yeah, if they didn't come in first, it wasn't successful. Right. But that's not the point for us, right? It's like, we want the drive. We want to support that drive. When we build an application, I, I built an application using InstallShield years ago. And people were like, well, if you can use InstallShield, this is in the 90s. They were like, you can write a program. I just did it because I had to and wanted to, right? But it took many hours. And this is a classic thing in building any kind of application. But if it failed, it was still a learning experience. So part of it is learning, and then you try again. So Hacker Initiative is not there to judge the merit of these projects. We're looking for impact and measurable results. So in the case of a robotics team, like, what's the impact? In that case, it would be like, are you working with the community are you teaching kids in your community are you it maybe doing sessions at the library you have a YouTube channel where you show how you build stuff you share how you learned how to build a worm drive like that's that has real impact measurable results that's a little more challenging but so we have one project we funded where they built a what they called the a farm bot it's basically a robotic arm out of a kit to maintain plants and the idea the impact was they were they were growing food for an aging population in a community that didn't have a lot of money so and the way they measured it and this was actually suggested by our attorney she suggested why don't you weigh the food there you go <laughs> there's that's a I, I, I never occurred to me how would you measure impact well weigh it you're growing food how much food did you grow did you grow 10 pounds or a thousand pounds yeah so that's that's impact And that is really the kind of thing that we're looking for. Like, take a step back and say, like, how can you do more with this information? What can you teach? Just as you teach, you know, with real Python, right? Like, what do we give back to a community? That has real impact too. But there are lots of projects when you start thinking about it that could do this, but they're not these are not commercial ventures. We're we're not we're not funding startups. Right. We're not looking for that. It's the kid or it's an adult who's like, Hey, I need twelve hundred bucks to get this thing, and here's my in, in fact I think you can do more sometimes with a thousand dollars than you can with a hundred thousand, because the person who wants that thousand they're so dedicated and all they want, for example, is I want to take a Jura espresso machine and they cost two thousand bucks. I want to hack them and I want to make them into a you know a, a blowtorch or something. I don't know, Whatever. I mean not, but yeah. it's like okay, <laughs> that sounds cool. And why will what will the impact be? Oh, well, basically, I'm trying to have people have home blowtorches so they can make creme brulee. Yeah, you know, I'm making a random yeah nonsense, right? But like and we would not approve that to the project, but but like someone wants to buy something, take it apart, and modify it and basically destroy the equipment. And a parent's like, there's no way you're not gonna buy <laughs> I don't know what these things cost, a thousand dollar, you know, phone just to destroy it. Right. But we'd say, Oh, that's cool. How much money do you need? What are you gonna do with it? I well, I want to modify this so that. I can make an open source version of this or have people modify it so that they can connect to some, some open network or, or just add some explosive feature in, on the board that they couldn't get to. And I want to teach them how to do it. Do you see what I mean? So,
0: yeah. Yeah, so you're sharing kind of what you've created and you're kind of able to either create a large impact through maybe the internet, but also maybe a local impact through like having, you know, classes at a library or something like that. Or some other yeah. kind of public thing. Okay.
2: YouTube, or but you know, here's what I did, and here's what here's what you can do with it. Yeah. So one one part of hacking is like, here's what I did, do try it. Like take a bunch of code, write this initial thing, and then you talk about ways that you can basically hack the code. In in it, I'm not talking about breaking things. I'm talking about right making that into something that it wasn't before.
0: Yeah. And when we talked earlier, we kind of went down a little path where we we're talking about that large nonprofits typically are not interested in the small stuff to sponsor why was that what were some of the reasons there
2: so my my understanding and from and and my conversation with other people in the nonprofit world is that when you when you're giving out grants and you can see this let's say you're a national science foundation right they don't want to talk to you if you want 500 dollars they'll talk to you if you have i think they have like a billion dollar funding right so they'll give you 10 million dollars but if you say I just need 1200, they're not going to pay attention to you because someone's going to have to put the time into evaluate and they're looking for impact. So if you go back to government oversight and say like, here's how we, here's what we funded. You want to show impact and measurable results. This is, this is what I learned about early on about granting. Like when you look at sites like charity navigator or similar that evaluate nonprofits, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on in the nonprofit world from what I've seen. And that's a lot of it is there, there are definitely, there are large, very large nonprofits where one gives to the other and they, they're showing, I don't, I don't know that there's a whole bunch of reporting that I, I let our attorney and accountant deal with. Yeah. But there's a lack, real lack of transparency. And when it comes to evaluating projects, like we're designed to do, we want to do microgranting. I firmly believe that that's a way to really make a difference because most people aren't writing requests for $10 million they're like, I just need a couple thousand bucks and I'll do this.
0: Yeah. This is going to kickstart our robot team or whatever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Sure. But like, but with large nonprofits, it's like, they don't want to talk to you, not because they aren't, they don't like your project, but they have to actually show to their donors or supporters. Like here's, here's how we used the hundred million dollars that we have. Here's where the money went. And they're not going to, if you think about the time investment in like all these little projects, it's not worth it to them because they, they're not designed that way. Yeah. So the idea here is to make it easy for people to reach out with projects where someone understands them and can say, "Yeah, this is cool. You wanna you want to show how to convert uh, a van to be so totally solar powered. You have a process for doing it. Um, you're going to release the plans for free. You're going to show people the steps, and like that's something we can support. And again, if it doesn't work, you know, then what we want to do is share the, share what failed. Teach us right. what not to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. So part part of why we wanted to get you on the show is mm-hmm. you were sort of almost like a. We talked to so many people doing a, conferences, this sort of call for proposals. Y- you were saying, "Hey, I, I'm looking for people to submit grants."
2: Yes, absolutely. We're, we're. I mean, we we are. the The grant cycle is open. On th- I think the I have to, I forgot to check. I think the closing date is August. It's on the website, but yes, we, we need we need people to, to submit grants because we, we're not actually designed. We can't actually go and we can encourage people to submit, but we can't go and say we want to give money to this organization. We're not structured that way, so people need to do a question.
0: As I read through it, the, it seems pretty straightforward. I, I would imagine some people might be nervous about the idea of Oh, my gosh, I've never, you know, you know, unless they're like maybe in the academic world and have done lots of grant applications. This looks like an application process that I I wouldn't be that nervous about. It seems like it's just like three steps. (laughs) So that's not too bad.
2: Yeah. well, And there is a human on the other. There's a group on the other end. So their, their task in the programming committee is to look at what comes in and basically mentor the grant applicant. And that has an inter- So they're, okay, I should talk about what programming is in the nonprofit world because that totally confused me initially. This is not, they're not working on coding. The, it's the program of the nonprofit. So that's what we, when we talk about programming, that's what the committee does. So their goal is to figure out which kind of things meet the mission of the nonprofit, pass or exclusions and such. And mentorship is basically the service of the nonprofit. And that doesn't mean yeah. we're going out and showing you how to code. It means basically that we're showing you how to. Th- did you get the money? Do you know how to use it? Do you know how to? Are you getting us the interim report? Are you taking pictures and documenting your project so that we can share? We can share your results. That there's a final grant closed out. So there's a bunch of paperwork. Yeah, but that's what the mentorship committee is meant to do. It's not like in an ideal world, down the road we'll have mentors, but we'll actually match people to mentors and help. But that's not what it is right now.
0: Okay. Yeah, the programming is much more like a. Uh programming a film festival and picking the the things and correct
2: but creating the programming for a film festival yeah and then making sure it's going to work okay and that that people know what's expected of them when they go and show their film you have to make sure bring your own projector or whatever the deal is right
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah cool yeah it says the 2023 grant cycle is currently open and closes august 15th i'll include links for all this stuff Thank you, and a little bit about the first tech challenge because that, that sounds really fascinating. I'm sure there's some some people that might be interested.
2: Yeah, that's that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing initiative. I don't know what what uh, platforms are using now. They were using uh, Lego Mindstorms, but I don't know if they're still doing that. And that was started by uh, Dean Kamen, who created the Segway, among other things. Like that's not the thing he's most proud of, apparently, but the thing we all know him for. Yeah, that's a great thing, and many people listening may have heard about that or have been involved that's a great way to teach people like basic skills how to run a small organization how to run a future business how to actually make a project happen make it work
0: yeah earlier we talked a little about this idea of underserved areas and mm-hmm. not really based around like income but like underserved as far as like this community of hackers are maybe not looked at the same way as far as like you know funding and and people being getting involved and I don't know if you can speak about that a little bit more, about this sort of underservedness of this community of hacking.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, when I grew up, I was the weirdo in high school. I was the kid who liked science and spent the evenings in the science labs.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah.
2: And, I mean, this is, we, had, we did have computers somewhere and had punch cards at the time, and I wasn't interested in working with punch cards. But we, we have many people around the world who are misunderstood. And I, and I, I misunderstood that would have been a, the wrong word to use, but that's kind of what it is. It's like people who are, who don't have the resources, let's say. So in my case, my son growing up had contacts. I go to a lot of conferences. I have a lot of connections. I could introduce them to people. Yeah. That's not true for many people growing up. It's not true for people who have grown up. They might, you know, feel frustrated because they haven't been able to do something. They didn't have the connections. They wanted to learn something. So I always think of this as the brain inside our head, the person, wherever they are, they might be in a super wealthy family and it's not, it's not about money. It's more just like, you know, how many people growing up had someone say, Oh, you don't want to do that. Or that's a waste of your time. Go ahead and play baseball. Right now there's nothing wrong with baseball. I can't catch, I can't hit, but it's just not the way it was wired. So I'm going to do something different. Maybe you want to like redesign the baseball bat and, and someone says to you, you can't do that. You're only 12. But maybe you have a great idea, so and maybe you need twenty five hundred bucks to get it machined, so you can actually test your idea. So we have people in various situations where they don't have the support they could use, and part of what they need is money. We're not we're not going to mentor you on how to do that with your baseball fan, right? But if someone's like, "Here's this cool thing I want to do. Here's the impact it will have. Here's how I'm going to measure whether it works," and it's like that's a really cool project, and we'll we'll fund it. I mean, it's not that simple. But the programming committee might then boost it to the board, and the board's like, "Yeah, this is cool." Right. But underserved, it can be people living in certainly poorer communities, people without the resources. But it, but that's not the primary motivator. This is that's not how the nonprofit was formed. Yeah. But to reach out to people who don't have the support and give them some level of support that will allow them to fulfill a dream, to test something, to prove prove us all wrong about something, you know, <laughs> yeah. build a quantum computer in their bathtub. Right. You know.
0: Yeah, cool. That's awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the show to to tell us about this. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about next year's grant proposals. And I'm excited to see who comes out and wants to check it out.
2: Thank you. You're, you're a really good interviewer and I appreciate it. Appreciate the, the way you approach it.
0: Oh, thank you so much.
2: I really appreciate the opportunity to to share some of what we do.
0: And I want to thank you for what you do for uh, No Starch. I'm I'm a huge fan. Thanks again.
2: Yeah. Thank you for allowing me to, to share this with you.
0: I want to thank Bill Pollock and Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player, and if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea.
2: I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.